Hi, my name's Ryan Perry. I'm the pastor at Seneca Baptist Church, and we are so thankful that you're joining us in this online resource. Our prayer for you is that this resource would not replace your active involvement in a local body of Christ, but would rather be supplemental to it. If you are interested in getting further connected to the ministry of Seneca Baptist Church or to giving financially, please visit our website, SenecaBaptist.org. Thank you and enjoy. Again, grab your Bible, go to Exodus chapter 25. We've been in the book of Exodus for a little while and we started last week a new series called Shadows. And shadows, the idea of shadows is that the shadow is not the substance. Uh, The shadow reminds us that there is a substance. The shadow points to something greater than itself. The shadow is cast by something far more significant than the shadow. And so today, as we look at the Old Testament in 24 and 25, like we did last week, we are reminded that in the Old Testament there are shadows of Christ. That Jesus is um, the figure, the most important figure in all of the Bible from the book of Genesis to the book of Revelation. That every story whispers his name. I mean, just think about the Bible that we have. The Bible that we have is not really one book, but it's one big book compiled of 66 smaller books. Those 66 books were written by 40 different authors of all various kinds and shapes. They were written on three continents, in three languages, and each one of those stories, somehow, by God's manifold wisdom, is knit together to tell a story, and at the center of a story is a man named Jesus. Every story, from the beginning to the end, is pointing forward to Him, or pointing backward to Him. They're all linked to this manger that we're about to celebrate in just a few weeks. Can you believe that we're going to celebrate Christmas in just a handful of weeks? Mind blown. Now, as we think about this idea of shadows, when we read the Old Testament, how many of you have ever read the book of Leviticus and you were like, when's it ever going to be over? It feels like driving across Kansas or Tennessee or something like that. When will I ever get out of this state? That's what you feel like when you read the book of Leviticus. But when you read the Old Testament and when you read it with Jesus in mind, what you're going to see is is it brings an excitement level to the Old Testament that you've never seen before. Why? Because you're not reading it uh, and looking at the various laws or the various sacrifices that that were made. You're not reading about the Ark of the Covenant. I mean, the passage that we just read, if you just think about the passage itself, is so utterly boring. But when you remember that that story or that section of Scripture is a shadow of something greater, man, it gets really exciting to read. And this is one I I love, I love recognizing that Jesus was a Jewish Messiah. And so all of the Old Testament, all of the Jewish regulations, all of the Jewish sacrificial uh, offerings and uh, ways that they worshipped are all pointing forward to the Messiah. His name is Jesus. And today we're going to dive right into that. 
Now, today we're talking about the Ark of the Covenant. How many of you have seen the Indiana Jones movie, Raiders of the Lost Ark, right? It's just like that, I promise. Okay, so let's look here at our Bible and let's dive right on in. Okay, so now in in chapter 25, let me just give you some context here. Chapter 25, Moses is up on the mountain for 40 days, a long time. And while Moses is on the mountain, God says to Moses in Exodus 25, 8. So this is, I don't think it's up on the screen, but there we go. It is up. I'm better than I thought I was, okay? Um, it, it says, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Exodus 25, 8. So God says to Moses, um, I want you to make a sanctuary, uh, a tabernacle. And I'm going to dwell in it, and I'm going to dwell in your midst. What an incredible promise to the people of Israel that, that God had redeemed them out of slavery, parted the sea, fed them with the manna from heaven, uh, satisfied their thirst from water that flowed from the rock, led them with a pillar of cloud by day and fire by night, now brought them to a mountain and made a covenant with them, and now he says, I'm going to dwell in your midst. Can you just imagine the Almighty, the great I Am, the Creator of all things, will descend, leave heaven in a sense, condescend to dwell among a sinful people, so that all the nations around them and Israel themselves would know that there's one God and His name is Yahweh. What an amazing thought. Now, in Exodus 25 to 31, chapter 25 to chapter 31, God is describing every aspect of the tabernacle. God gave incredible detail, specific detail, uh, to the design and function of everything in the tabernacle. Specific dimensions of each item, what it's supposed to be made out of, how it's to be made, how it's to look, and... Uh, how it's to be carried, who's to carry each of those things, and what it would be used for. So that's, if you're reading in the book of Exodus ever, and you come to 25 through 31, he's still on the mountain, and God's giving him a prescription of what it ought to look like. And it reminds us that God is a God of intention and order. God is never the author of chaos. There is no chaos in God's plan. Now, nor do the people of Israel get to decide how they're going to worship their own way. It's not God's design. God says, I, I will create a people and I will teach them to worship as I instruct them because there is a way of worship that's pleasing to the Lord and there's a way that's not. And so, God decides what's worshipful. And every detail of the tabernacle was laid out for them. And this reminds us that these things in the scripture, all of the tabernacle and all of the details, all of the utensils, all of the altars, as beautiful as they were, are shadows of things to come, of something greater. And if God decided how the tabernacle should be built, don't you think he has very specific plans for every aspect of how the church ought to be built? Remember, he's not the author of chaos, but he is a God of intention and design. And, don't you think God has the same design and intention 
for his eternal church that he did for a tabernacle that he knew would be temporary? Pastor Ken said it this morning in Sunday school. He said the church is the only earthly organization that you're going to be a part of in heaven. And God did it. And God has intention and design in that. So you can't be all willy-nilly with the church and then ask God to bless it. You can't. Willy-nilly's Hebrew word. Look it up. So we, Seneca Baptists, we got to seek the Lord for His plan for His church. Now, in 25, 1 to 9, this is what it says. God tells Moses to take up a contribution from the people for the tabernacle. All right, so a question for us as we think about this. Where in the world did a group of displaced nomadic people come up with all of the things, all of the, the gold, the fine linen, the bronze, the iron, uh, the, the gems, these costly gems and precious stones? Where, did, where in the world did they get all of those things to build the tabernacle? Anybody? Egypt. Do you remember when they came out, it says they plundered Egypt? I mean, the people of Egypt were saying, here, take our treasure and go. And isn't it interesting that God uses a pagan nation and all the pagan wealth in that pagan nation to build his tabernacle? And it reminds us that everything in the world belongs to God. There is nothing in this world that is not his. And that's why the psalmist says the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Now, it's reminding us also that whatever is God's plan, design, and intention also has God's provision. But we can't, he never, he never promises to bless our good intentions. He always promises to bless our obedience. And so church family, when the Lord leads us to something, He will always provide for what He leads us to. Isn't that good news? We had an incredible budget discussion on Wednesday night where our stewardship committee presented our budget for this upcoming year. And that was the exact tone and tenor of the meeting was that what God leads us to, what God plans for us, He will always provide for. God always makes a way for His people to be obedient. Now, many times in history, in order to build something, a ruler or king would tax the people to build the kingdom. So the the ruler over that land would forcibly tax the people to get what he needed to build what he wanted. Now, that is not the way that God works. That's not the way God works. In 25.2, it says this. Speak to the people of Israel that they may take for me a a contribution from every man whose heart moves him. You shall receive the contribution from me. We talk about this word all the time. This is where we get the idea of generosity. It doesn't say, take their money and give it to me that I might build my sanctuary. Now he says, from every man whose heart moves him. You shall receive a contribution. Now, remember, just God does not exact a tax from His people. He gives an opportunity 
to generously give temporary treasures to build what will teach the coming generations about the holiness and grace and mercy of a, the Almighty God. This is why generosity is so important for us. Because it turns the focus of my heart from the love of money to the love of God, the intention of my money from self to God, and it changes the impact of my money to temporary to eternal. Generosity does that. And generosity is a means to us having a greater heart and love for God alone. You will never have a deep, satisfying relationship with God apart from radical generosity. You just won't. And so he says, every heart, every man whose heart moves him, let him give. Now, here's where we're turning into the shadow, okay? I want to show you two things. I want to show you the ark and the mercy seat. The ark and the mercy seat. Now, in chapter 25, verse 10, it says, They shall make an ark of acacia wood, two and a half cubits, or two cubits and a half shall be its length, a cubit and a half its breadth, okay? So, uh, there we go. Verse 11, you shall overlay it with pure gold inside and outside, you shall overlay it. You shall make on it a molding of gold around it. You shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them on its four feet. Two rings on one side of it and two rings on the other side of it. Verse 13, poles of acacia wood, overlay them with gold. Put the poles through the rings, verse 14, and carry the ark by them. 15, the poles shall remain in the rings. Don't take them out. Don't lose them. They shall not be taken from it. In verse 16, you shall put into it into the ark, the testimony that I shall give you. Now, simply put, when we think about this, the ark was a box overlaid with gold, and it was to be carried not with human hands, but by the poles, uh, and, which went through gold rings on the four corners of it. These priests would carry the ark of God with the poles through the gold rings. So the box was essentially, it would become kind of like a spiritual treasure chest uh, of God's people. It would hold so many things that were precious to the people of God. In verse 16, it says, you put into the ark the testimony that I shall give to you. What is the testimony? The Ten Commandments. Two tablets of stone. Ten Commandments went inside it. Later on, it would hold um, a jar of manna from the wilderness. Later, it would hold the staff of Aaron that budded. And it was an amazing symbol for God's people. And so as they traveled through the wilderness, they were to follow the ark from one location to the other location. And it was to lead the way for the people of Israel. It was a symbol of kind of three things. It was a symbol of the presence of God. It was a symbol of the power of God. It was a symbol of the provision of God. And it was also His Word. It was a container for those things. And so when the ark was touched by human hands, what happened? That person felt the wrath of God. Didn't they? When, when, when the ark went into the hands or went to Philistia, it became a curse to the pagan nation. And when the ark went to the house of, I think his name was Obed-Edom, he was a worshiper of God, it brought incredible blessing. The ark was a reminder to all of God's people of God's complete and utter holiness. And it was wherever it went. So what was in there? The, ta or the testimony, the Ten Commandments, the manna, and the staff that budded. His 
power, His presence, and His Word. His Word. Now, then the second thing I want you to see in this passage is the mercy seat. The mercy seat. Verse 17, you shall make a mercy seat. That um, in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the word mercy seat is actually hilasterion. Hilasterion. Now remember that. It's, it's, um, it's going to come back up. Hilasterion. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, and a cubit and a half its breadth. Okay? Verse 18, you shall make two cherubim of gold of hammered work, so sh- sh- or shall you make them on the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub on the one end and one on the other. Let them face each other. Verse 20, the cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings. Their faces one to another toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be. Verse 21, and you shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I give you. So the mercy seat was somewhat of a cover or a lid to the Ark of the Covenant. So the Ark held those things. And remember, it's a, a reminder of God's word or his law. It was a reminder of God's presence and it was a reminder of God's power to the people. And so on top of that was the, the mercy seat. And on each end of the mercy seat were two cherubim. Now, the, so it, it was a lid. It was Uh, It fit on top of the ark, and it was made of pure gold, and its dimensions were basically 45 inches by 27 inches. So we're not talking about this huge thing. 45 inches and 27 inches. And and on the corners were two cherubim. So let's answer the question, what is a cherub, and why are they there? Okay. Now, most of the time we think of cherubs, we think of um, uh, Cupid, don't we? Fat baby little wings, arrow, right? Cherub. That's not what the Bible says a cherub looks like. In, like if you see a fat baby with wings, even though he has a bow and arrow, I'm going to want to pinch his cheek, right? But the cherubs in the Bible are angelic beings who fought on God's behalf. They were warrior angels, and they were terrifying. Every time someone comes into face-to-face contact with one of the angels of God, they did not pinch his cheek and say, how cute, did they? They fell on their face and they tried to worship that angel. And that angel said, don't worship me. I'm just a servant of God. They were fierce and They were to be feared. So why is it there? Two of them, one on each side. It reminds us of a story. See, at the beginning, God created. He put Adam and Eve in a garden, gave them one rule, said, don't eat of that tree. All the other trees in the garden you can eat. You know the story. Adam and Eve decided to rebel against God and essentially say, we make a better king than you do. We know what's better for us than you do, so we're going to eat of the tree that you told us not to eat from. They were deceived by the serpent, and they both took and ate. Because of that rebellion, there was consequences. 
and there was a threefold curse. There was a curse on the, the, the serpent, there was a curse on the woman, there was a curse on the man. I don't have time to preach that message today. Um, but there was also provision. At the end of the book, or, or at the end of Genesis 3, God sacrifices an animal, covers their sin, nakedness, and shame. And then he casts them out of the garden. And let's look at what it says. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden he placed the what? Cherubim. Fat baby with a wings and a little arrow? No. He placed the cherubim in a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. In other words, God cast them out of the garden and the cherubim were there as a reminder that because of your sinful condition, the access to the garden is denied. You can't come back into the the place where God's holiness dwells. And so, remember, you've got underneath, you've got in the Ark of the Covenant, you've got the covenant or the, the law written by God, God's holy and precious and righteous words. And then you've got the, the staff that budded and the jar of manna, and on top was a lid and the lid was called the mercy seat, but overshadowing the mercy seat were these two cherubim that reminded all of God's people that there was no access into God's presence because of sin. Are you with me, church? It rep the ark represented God's holiness. It was a symbol of God's standard of perfect righteousness. And it was such a glorious standard that we must possess to enter His presence, and it was such a standard that mankind could never meet. And the cherubim reminded God's people that the way for humanity to come into His presence was guarded because sinful man cannot come into the presence of God without deadly consequences. But between the ark and the cherubim was a mercy seat. A mercy seat. In Leviticus chapter 16, once a year, on the Day of Atonement, which is called Yom Kippur, uh, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies with the blood of a lamb. And once a year, he would take the blood of the lamb and he would take it in to the Holy of Holies and he would sprinkle seven times the blood of the Lamb on the mercy seat. And in doing so, the Lamb was slain in its blood shed in the place of each sinful person who had come to worship that day. The Lamb died so that the people didn't have to. The blood was sprinkled on the mercy seat so that the wrath of God at the sins of all Israel might be satisfied. The word hilasterion, mercy seat, actually means propitiation. 
We're going to come back to that. Because of the mercy seat, the righteous requirements of the law were now met. Why? Because you either keep the law or face the consequences. Mankind couldn't keep the law, so there were consequences. And so the lamb faced the consequences so that the people of God wouldn't have to. So that either by keeping the law or by breaking the law and consequences being paid, the righteous requirement of the law is fulfilled. Because the righteous requirement of the law is fulfilled, the people of God could be made right with God. Sinful man could be reconciled to a holy God, and now the people of God could boldly approach the throne of God and worship Him. Are you with me? Does that sound familiar? And that's why Exodus 25, 22 says, I haven't read it yet, he says there, between the two cherubim above the mercy seat, there I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. Now that's the shadow. Let me show you the substance. Three things. Jesus is the ark. Okay, so the ark was a manifestation of God's power, presence, and His holy word. Now Jesus comes on the scene. And in John chapter 1, He comes into the world and John 1, 1 says, In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. Jesus is the ark. And John 1, 14 says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That word dwelt is the same word that we get the idea of tabernacle from. Does that sound like a shadow? It says, in other words, um, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. So in Jesus, you have the presence of God. The fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him. He is God incarnate and he is by name the word of God. He is the ark. Colossians 1:19 through 20 says for in him that's Jesus all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. In Jesus there was no divinity lacking. Jesus did not subtract some divinity and add in some humanity. Jesus added humanity to 100% divinity. He was the only God-man. The fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Jesus. Now listen to the next phrase. And through Him to reconcile to Himself all things. Now, now He's the Jesus is the presence of God, He is the Word of God, and He reveals to all mankind the power of God. What did He do? Do you remember the miracles that He did? He come, He came, and, and very early on in His public ministry, there were miracles. The water to wine, the, the, the feeding of the 5,000, the healing of the lame man, the blind man, 
the raising of the dead uh, little girl. Jesus revealed the power of God. He was the walking, incarnate ark of God. Do you remember what the voice on the mountain of transfiguration said? This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Listen to him. He is. Follow him. What's the first thing he says? Come, follow me. All of Israel would follow the ark from place to place. And, they, and the, the Lord said, don't get too close. And Jesus invites people, get as close as you want. Come follow me. He is the incarnate ark of God. The power of God, the presence of God, and the ark of God in flesh. Are you with me, church? But that second phrase in Colossians 1.19 says, And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross, it brings us to the second thing. That Jesus is the, a better mercy seat. He is the mercy seat. Remember, you've got the holiness of the law, which no man could keep, which since we couldn't keep it, brought about a consequence. And the word of God says that man shall die for his sin. That, that Isaiah 59 says your sins separate you from God. There is the cherubim that we have to deal with because we can't keep the righteous requirement of the law. But in between the law of God and the cherubim who guard from the presence is a mercy seat. And his name's Jesus. His name is Jesus. Romans chapter 3, verse 23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And are justified by His grace. The word justified means to be made right with God and His law. And then it goes on. We're justified by His grace. That means you can't earn it. How do you know I can't earn it? Because it says, as a gift. God didn't look down from heaven and say, you know what? That one right there, he's just doing so, he's trying so hard. Let's just, oh, bless his little heart. God, hey, look at him. Let's help him out a little bit. Because he's a, a nickel shy of a dollar. No, we are completely bankrupt. We don't have a, a penny to our name. Not a righteous one, at least. All of our righteous deeds, the prophet Isaiah says, are like filthy rags. And God looks at us and he says, I'm going to do something for them. I'm going to justify them by my grace and it will be a gift to them. How? Through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. A redemption was a price that was paid to buy back somebody out of slavery. Well, what was the cost? Whom God put forth as a what? Propitiation. Greek word, hilasterion. As a mercy seat. There's the mercy seat in Exodus 25. And Jesus, God put Jesus forward as the mercy seat. That stood in between the law, the righteous requirements of the law. And the holiness of God. And Jesus stands there 
as our mercy seat. God put forward a propitiation by His blood. Let me tell you, the Day of Atonement. Hebrews says that the Day of Atonement happened every year. And every year in the Day of Atonement, there was a, a, a lamb slain, and there was a reminder of sin every year. Every year, i got to stink and bring another lamb to Jerusalem, and I have to take care of this year's sins. And next year, I'm going to have to walk a long way to Jerusalem again, bring another lamb, sacrifice another lamb so that my sins could be paid for. Every year in the sacrifice, there's a reminder of sin, but it says when Jesus, when Jesus shed His blood. It says that He did it once for all to earn for us an eternal redemption. His blood was shed and it was sprinkled only once. It doesn't need, Jesus' blood does not need seven times. It was only necessary for His blood to be sprinkled one time for you and me. He is the ark and He is the mercy seat that reconciles sinful man to a holy God. And then there are these cherubim. So let's talk about Jesus and the cherubim. Now, in the, the, the tabernacle, God instructed Moses that in the tabernacle there would be a curtain or a veil. In Exodus 26, 31, it says, And you shall make a veil of blue and uh, purple and scarlet, yarns and fine twined linen, and it shall be made with cherubim skillfully worked into it. So do you remember there was a veil in the temple that guarded um, the common folk from getting into the Holy of Holies? That had cherubim skillfully worked around its edges. Why? Just as a constant reminder that sinful humanity could not enter into the presence of a holy God without a mediator, without the mercy seat. Do you remember in Matthew chapter 27 what happens? Jesus on the cross cries out again with a loud voice and yielded up His Spirit and behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Remember what was on the, what was on the curtain? Cherubim. And who tore it up? God did. God did. Jesus became in that moment the once and for all, last and forever mercy seat. And by His blood, we can now be reconciled to a holy God and enter into His presence. And I don't need somebody to go for me. Why? Because I already have Jesus, the great high priest who went on my behalf. I don't need to bring blood. Why? Because He already shed His blood. How do I receive it? It's justified by His grace as a gift. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to do anything for it but to receive it. So what? So what, Ryan? Let's look at application real quick. First thing, you've got to come to God through the mercy seat. The mercy seat had specific dimensions. Two and a half cubits this way, one and a half cubits this way. 45 inches this way and 27 inches this way. There were dimensions. Dimensions on the mercy seat. J. Vernon McGee, one of the great Baptist preachers, he said God's salvation or God's way of salvation, like the mercy seat, is narrow. 
It has specific dimensions. And it's only as wide as the mercy seat is. In other words, there's only one way of salvation. Now that might seem like the most unloving message in the world. Except that God has made that way known. That way is open to everyone who would come through it. Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, in other words, although the blood of Jesus is sufficient for all of the sins of the entire world, it's only effective for those who recognize their need and come to Jesus, our mercy seat, to be reconciled to God. Receive the gift of justification. There is no universal salvation. God is not everybody's, or Jesus is not everybody's Savior. He is the Savior for everyone who will trust Him. Acts 4.12 says there's, there's salvation in no other name. It seems kind of narrow. It is. But how loving is God to make that narrow way known? But how hateful is it for His church to not let people know of that one way? How much do we have to hate somebody to not tell them that Jesus is the only way? It That way stands in stark contrast to every other religion in the world. Every other religion is a religion of works. you got to try hard. you got to be good. you got to keep the rules. you got to go to church, synagogue, um, mosque. you got to do it. And if you'll do all the things, then maybe God will have the mercy for you. But Christianity says you can never be good enough. You can never do enough. You can never keep enough rules. So Jesus came to do all that stuff for you. He came to keep and fulfill all the righteous requirements of the law and to die in your place. And if you'll just receive it, it's a gift. The second thing, the righteous requirement of the law has been satisfied. God Uh, The baptism of Jesus and on the mountain of transfiguration, two things, the same thing God said to, to Jesus or of Jesus, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. And now, listen to me, church family, because of Jesus, because he has lived in your place and died in your place, if you will trust in him, what God said of the son Jesus could also be said of you. This is my beloved child with whom I'm well pleased. But God, I haven't kept all the law. Nope. God, God, God says, nope, you haven't. But Jesus, my son, did it for you. God, I don't deserve to go to heaven. No, you don't. But because of Jesus, you can now. God, I don't feel holy. I don't feel righteous. I don't feel like a saint. God says, no, I know. But the truth of salvation is not based on your feelings. It's based on what Christ has accomplished on your behalf. just saying Jesus is the best news ever why would you not want to come to Jesus he fulfilled the righteous requirement of the law Romans 8 God has done what the law weakened by the flesh couldn't do 
by sending his own son in the likeness of sin, or of likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemns sin in the flesh, so that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Praise be to God. Third thing, the way to God's open. Because of that, if you've trusted Christ, the way to God is open. You can come to Him, but I feel dirty. It's okay. Christ's blood can cleanse you. And it did. Trust it. The way to God is open. You can have a relationship with Him. The God of the universe, the creator of all things, El Shaddai, Yahweh, the great I Am, you can come to boldly, you can uh, uh, come to Him, talk to Him, worship Him, and you can love Him. You can come into an intimate kind of love relationship with the God of the universe through Christ. The God's way is open. And you can do it boldly. Last thing. God dwells in His people now. So you remember the tabernacle, the, 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 the tent or the temple was God saying, I'll dwell in the midst. But where's the tabernacle now? Where's the temple now? It's no longer. Why? Because God doesn't dwell in a temple made of human hands. Were you made by human hands? God promises His people that He's come to live in you. That you might be the temple of a holy God. Now, there's an interesting thing in the Scriptures that God does. I think, Mr. James, do I have Colossians up there? Can't remember if I put it in my notes. There we go. Colossians 1. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And then Ephesians chapter 2, I believe it is, says that the church is the fullness of God. The fullness of God dwells in Jesus, and the church is the fullness of Jesus. Same word, pleroma. Jesus is the fullness of God, and the church is the fullness of Jesus. How does God make himself known today? Through this. What's God's plan to make himself known to pagan sinful nations? This. I don't need the church. Brother, sister, yes you do. Jesus died for it instituted it, shed his blood for it, said, I will build my church and the gates of hell won't prevail against it. God's plan for showing his holiness and his salvation to a lost and dying world is not a televangelist on TV. It's his church. And you get to be a part of that through Christ. And he invites you into that mission. Now you have purpose. You're a saint. And you're now set apart for a purpose. Would you stand with me? Some of you guys need to stretch out. Holy moly.
But other people in this room need to trust Jesus as Savior. You've been trying real hard, trying to keep all the rules, trying to keep your hands clean, but you can't. You've tried forever to earn your place in heaven, work your way up the ladder, but you keep stumbling. And Jesus says, come to me. I'll give you rest. You may have been in church your whole life, but you've never trusted Jesus. Would you pray with me? Heads are bowed, eyes are closed. Maybe you're in this place today and you say, Pastor Ryan, I recognize that I'm a sinner, that God is holy, and therefore I need a Savior. Is there anybody here today who would want to say, Pastor Ryan, I'm, I want to meet Jesus as my Savior and Lord. Would you just slide up your hand? It's just me looking. It's just me looking, but Pastor Ryan, I want Jesus to save me. I'm ready to accept that gift. I see that hand, buddy. Is there anybody else? Sister, I see your hand right there. Father, work in our hearts. Thank you so much for the shadow, but thank you for the substance. Thank you for the ark, but thank you so much more for Jesus. Today, would you bring salvation into people's hearts? And would you help us to fall more in love with him? In Jesus' name, everybody said, Amen. Amen. Now, I'm going to ask you to be blessed.